So first off, I'm cheersing you to our first ever episode of... I'll cheers you too. Read cheers This you. Way. Yes. Read This Way. Welcome. Because it is your first time listening because this is the first episode. And this is also my first time listening. So welcome, listener. <laughs> Okay, do you want to give them a breakdown of what we're going to do in totally. each episode? Yes, welcome listener. Take my hand as I guide you into the <laughs> magical realm of Read This Way. Um, so we are a two-hander, which in the theater world means that we are a two-person cast. Oh, I was like, we both have two hands. Yes, we're, we're the unique <laughs> group of people who have two hands. <laughs> And basically, Read This Way uh, got its title from the uh, manga comic. Uh, and if you've ever if you've ever read a manga, you know that it is read traditionally from the right to the left, which is non traditional for American readers. We read from the left to the right, but um, in translations of manga, they offer little arrows in the corner that say "Read This Way." to help you know which direction to read. So that is where mm-hmm. we got our title from. Basically what Renee and I are doing, um, we've decided that we love and miss each other. And what, <laughs> what better way to come together than record a podcast and share it with the world, right? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> to publicly share <laughs> our personal feelings. There's no narcissism in this at all. It's all just genuine. It's genuinely out of complete and utter belief that Altruism. you this. Yes. Oh yeah, that too. <laughs> this is um, we're being very generous and offering our voices and our opinions to you. Mm-hmm. So Renee sent me an Instagram message and said, "I think we need to make a podcast. What should we do?" And I looked around my living room and. You saw I, your cats? I saw Snowshoe <laughs> and I saw Fred and then I saw my Nintendo Switch that I bought in New Orleans. And I was like, I don't want to talk about any of those things except in passing. <laughs> so then I went inside myself and I really kind of meditated. And I said, what's something that you think you could talk really strongly about that you feel like you could be a voice of like reference in something like you could be scholarly reviewed and referenced about? And it wasn't comic books, it wasn't graphic novels or graphic memoirs or manga, but I had just recently read The Walking Dead compendiums, and I was like, you know what? I think I'd have a really good time talking about this. So that's what I pitched to Renee, and Renee said, hell yeah. Mm -hmm. So basically what we're bringing you is a little um, love child out of our love for each other, our love of knowledge, our love of Mm -hmm. the pursuit of the human condition through the mediums of literature, film, music, you know, theater. And it just so happens that this particular medium happens to be a comic book. And that's beautiful. And I um, really look forward. I do too. And I think it's, I think it's good that this is kind of what we're, discussing because i mean this in the most humble way possible but jace and i are both really intelligent and we both read a lot and i think there's this weird um almost like snootyism amongst you know people who read where like a traditional novel is held up as like the highest form of reading whereas a comic book or a graphic novel is like a lower rung if not the lowest and like manga is like low on there as well but these are all valid art forms and valid forms of expression and when we talk about what we're talking about today i think this was the best way to tell the story the author wanted to tell and i think you can say that for a lot of graphic novels and a lot of manga and a lot of comics absolutely and the level of storytelling and commitment and i think too like the synergy that comes into making a graphic novel or graphic memoir or comic book. Mm -hmm. I know I use, I literally reference all of the names for them because it's, it does it like there becomes such nuance when you delve into the world of them. They're so, it's just such a versatile art form and it can be such a form of like ensemble based work because an entire team can go into a comic book to tell its story. And it's like, to think about the amount of people that were involved in a project like that 
because they were all so behind telling that story. That almost makes me excited about like reading the project. And I think it's fun, like going further with comics is that for some series that have lasted a long time, like I think Walking Dead, because, you know, it, it lasted so much longer. Well, I don't know if it lasted longer than the series. It probably, I think it did. It lasted longer than the series. But you have multiple artists working on that with different styles. You have multiple authors working on that, like leading this story forward. And you don't necessarily get that with many other art forms, unless it's like an iconic character. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you might have somebody else writing a Sherlock Holmes story, but like, that's about it. You don't necessarily have the realm of collaboration and different ideas contributing to a story the way you do it uh, in these. Absolutely. Which I think we'll cover The Walking Dead at one point. So I think we should. We, We have it somewhere. We have I at have, least the first like three or four somewhere. Oh, I have I have all the comp- I have the entire collection, the entire compendium. Renee, I was I was doing a um a workshop for a Meister class and we opened it with um um it was say your name, say your pronouns, and um what what was the exact wording of it? It's like one thing that you think you do really well. Mm-hmm. Or that one thing that you're passionate about that you think you do really well. Okay. And oh my that god, Renee. Um, but my dumbass, are you ready? So I'm so ready. I'm I go hi, my anticipation. <laughs> I go hi, my name's Jace Wingate. My pronouns are he, him, his, and um, I read really well. <laughs> and and I'm watching these people's faces over Zoom and they're like waiting. They're like in um they're like in anticipation waiting like for more. So I don't say anything else, and then we go into the next person, and of course, like not misunderstanding more so than me just wanting brevity to get through the like opening moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hear these other people, they're like, they're like, I'm just and it's so sweet because they're so meaning it and they're so sweet. It's you know, I just this is my name. These are my pronouns. And, you know, I just feel like I'm really good at listening to other people and just really hearing them out and supporting them in the ways they need to be supported. And I felt so dumb because I'm like, oh, my answer could have been better. And also, like, who the who the hell says, like, I'm good at reading. I read really well. Like, like what does that person look like in the world? Like who who says hi? This is my name. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I read really well. I am so good at a skill I mastered when I was six years old, and I have been just developing it ever since. I've been running proverbial marathons. <laughs> I have, you know, I don't know. I you know, I've waited my entire life for this question. Um, and I'm trying not to like screw this up right now but I really want you all to know that I read really well. I'm just thinking of those stupid (laughs) memes where it's like, your marathon is in Boston. My marathon is going through war and peace. We are not the same, sis. Oh my God. Oh, that's brilliant. (laughs) God, war and peace is a marathon That's so good. (laughs) War and Peace is a marathon, though. War War and Peace is like, it's an Iron Man. That's not even just a marathon. That's true. You deserve more credit for that. I should, what would would be a good marathon book? Marathon Uh, book is like maybe. Punishment? Mayor of Casterbridge, maybe. Oh, nice. A fun marathon would be doing Canterbury Tales. Oh yes. You get to stop for a glass of uh, of water every half mile. Exactly. That's like that's a luxurious. That's like Canterbury Tales is like the marathon you run at Disney World. Mm-hmm. Where it's like you I get remember, all the really great merch. I remember the first time I read it, I was like, "Why don't people like this? Why does everybody like talk bad about this book? It's so fun." Like I I haven't read it in so long, but I remember loving it. I you know the th- when I worked at the tavern for a minute, they did an adaptation of Canterbury Tales like every Christmas. Oh, that's amazing! That's it's it's hilarious. There's like um, a romance story where a guy won't leave a girl alone, so she tricks him into like sh- uh, into shoving his face into her butt, and then she farts in his face. 
See, that's all that you like, need. <laughs> it's like one of those where like he thinks that she's going to kiss him so she gets him to close her eyes and then it's like but fart which is great and uh it's nice to know that um human humor does not change ever oh it's always going to be at the base mm-hmm. we're still laughing at the same shit that people in pompeii laughed at that um chaucer laughed at we don't change that's the no. best argument for like we're not more uh, crass than anyone 500 years ago. I really like to, um, it's very much that commedia mentality where it's like, you look at the Zani um, and it's their base joys are like food, sex and um, farts and poop. <laughs> like that's literally, and you're right. Like it's, it's always going to be the, those are always going to be the funniest things. Yes. Yeah, you could, as anything on the, like the bottom triangle of the hierarchy of needs, hilarious. The bottom triangle of the hierarchy of needs. Oh, um, Maslow's heart. So oh, <laughs> I thought you were like hierarchy of needs. No, I'm just like that, pondering on it. It's so good. Because that happens to me a lot. Where I'll be like, oh, da 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 this thing that I'm very aware of. And then Kat will look at me and she'll be like, why do you think people just know that? I'm like, I don't know. Sometimes I just say things in my brain and I just assume everybody has the same background as me. God, me too. Me too? Hey, <laughs> no, I think I do. It's called, it, there's a word for this, Renee. It's called trusting your audience. Oh, that's words, but I understand. Exactly. So we just witnessed me doing exactly (laughs) what you do, trusting your audience, which is exactly what we're doing with the listeners of this podcast as well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're trusting that you won't press the pause button five seconds in. Yeah, there's no ads to skip. There's no need to touch any buttons. Yeah, we're like, we're guerrilla podcasting right here. This is like grassroots, mm-hmm. like from the ground up. No Casper ads, no um, Dollar Shave Club. Um, what's the box die club? What's the box die one? <laughs> is it is it Ashley Madison or is that the dating? Madison Reed. Madison Reed. Madison Reed. <laughs> I always, when I think, when they start talking about Madison Reed, I'm like, isn't that the, oh no, it's the hair box company. Okay. Yeah. Or Bob's Hair Color Company. Okay. So our, fir- our first book for our first episode is one that we are both big fans of and one's one we have both read before. And I think we both cried when we reread it. And that was a beautiful moment to share together. I believe it came out in 2000. And I had to get Kat to correct me because I was pronouncing it wrong. Um, but it's Persepolis. Story of a Childhood by Marjane Satrapi. How are you pronouncing it? Persopolis. I don't know why. Just in my head, it was that just made sense. I love that. <laughs> Anytime I mispronounce something, I just blame it on being homeschooled. But um, Persepolis is an amazing story about growing up during the Iranian Revolution, which is something that isn't really talked about in. America. I know growing up, I knew nothing about Iran until after the Iraq war started. It wasn't really anything that ever I ever studied in um, elementary or middle school. Definitely didn't know anything about the Iranian revolution or the hostages or going further into the 80s, the Iran-Contra affair. But it's a really great story of the before and after of living in Tehran before the revolution when they were protesting against the Shah, that weird period after the Shah left and there was kind of a leadership vacuum, and then the afterwards when the country became very Islamic. I think it it's a great story to read if you're not super familiar with that time period or even, you know, if you're not super familiar with Iran in general because... I think it's it's a country that has been so demonized by the American media that it's difficult to to understand the real lives of people who are in that country. 
Was there anything you wanted to add about just like an overview of the book? I think you covered literally every part of it. I think okay. the, I, the only thing I would add is that like it's a coming of age story during a kind of like deconstruction of age of the country in which the coming of age story is happening in. Yeah, like she's progressing while her country is regressing. She's so interesting. I was listening to a couple of her interviews and she's so well-spoken and just so like, so intelligent. I think she just does such Mm -hmm. a great job of capturing that in her like, because it's weird because she's, she describes it. She's like, it's not a memoir, but it is a, but it's like, it's a graph, it's a graphic novel edging towards graphic Mm -hmm. memoir because she doesn't necessarily like, she's like, it's fictional and it's a comic book because it's in that form but a majority of it is what happens to her yeah so i think that's a really interesting way to kind of like describe that and the first part of it almost feels like a love letter to what the country could be like that was one of the themes that i wrote down that i really wanted to talk about because i think the first part of the book after the shah has stepped down and her uncle is released from jail and her parents and their friends and her uncle are all talking about like what's going to happen next and they're all so full of hope that this is this is what they fought for like mm-hmm. this is what they went out and protested against and this person who was persecuting not just her family personally but also the entire country has is gone and there's this chance for like a rebirth of the country and seeing that hope getting chipped at like one by one especially in the case of her uncle where as the news comes in that like no this is going to be bad this is what's going to happen because most of the people are really going for an islamic republic like even as more and more facts come in he still holds on to that hope that it's going to be good and it's going to be this amazing socialist republic And he holds on to it until it's too late, until there's no way he can escape. And he, he, well, I don't want to say he pays for it because that sounds like he deserves it. He absolutely doesn't deserve it. But it is heartbreaking that he is robbed of these good ideals he wanted and ends up where he started in the story. Like his narrative goes full circle. I agree. I think that like, I think that entire, because you're talking about a noose, right? Yes. That that moment really spoke to me when because it's the way she writes, you're right, and it's so it's this longing for what the country can be and there's mm-hmm. so and the way that she writes it too, like every the, the entire country is super saturated with the war. It's like obsessed with it. Right? So like that's yeah. all they're talking about. They're talking about the war stories. How did you benefit? Who's in jail for your family? Um, who died for the cause. Mm-hmm. And and I think this is such a pivot point in the narrative for Margie because she's like, you know, she has these two kind of like, she has these two avant-garde um, parents who are very much anarchists in the culture. Yes. And she doesn't have, but so, so, so she doesn't have anyone in jail. So it's like, we it's this beautiful moment where we get to see from this child's point of view, like everyone at school has a person who's in jail who did something. My parents aren't in jail, but then I have this uncle Anoush who can come out and tell me the story so I can take that to school. And it's, um, Mm -hmm. it's amazing because we do get a noose at a time where like Margie is, Margie is working with information at a way of like, she knows how to use, she, she knows how to collect information. She knows how to regurgitate it back. And then we get the, we get that moment where like her dad is like talking to Anoush and she comes in and she just like quotes something that she heard on the TV. And then her dad yells at her and then she runs out crying. She's like, I just heard on TV. (laughs) And yeah, and I was thinking of because another thing I wanted to talk about a lot more in depth later, but I just want to bring it up now is she has such a rebellious streak, mm-hmm. and it turns up very early before Anush even gets out of jail because her parents are these like they're very involved in the protests and they're the people going out every single week to protest against the Shah, 
And she starts out rebelling against her parents because she goes to, you know, this French school where she's taught that the Shah is a good individual. So she initially at the, you know, near the beginning of the story, she is going against, gleefully going against her parents because they're talking about all these terrible things he's done. And she's like, no, the Shah is a great man. And I think part of the story is her her growth and her choosing to re- or finding different ways to rebel and her like learning how I guess you're you're so right because she does take in information so well but her like finding the right information to take in learning that the sources of where you hear something are so important and she doesn't change either when they do the switch and she's in the ultra religious school you know or when she goes to the new ultra religious school she does the same thing. The teacher says, oh, there aren't any political prisoners. She stands up and she's like, actually, yes, there are political prisoners. So she doesn't change. She just changes the where she gets her information from. I love that shift. I think that's, that was a really poignant moment for me, too, in the book when she stands up about the political prisoners in school mm-hmm. and it gets her expelled. Yeah. you know, And I think that's kind of really powerful, too, is like, It's putting your money where your mouth is, putting your beliefs Mm -hmm. into practice. It is funny how how she grows because when she starts out, like when Anoush gets out of jail, and I think you talked a little bit before about how everyone she knew had like a relative in prison. And when she's younger, she's resentful because her parent, her dad isn't in jail. And then she finds out about her grandfather and she's like, oh, grandfather was in jail for so much longer than this guy. And it's strange. Like, it's almost strange what she latches onto. And I think that's normalized for her. Yes. Yeah. Because when you're a child, you don't don't understand the nuances. You Mm -hmm. just understand wanting to be the king of the mountain and wanting to have something to brag about. And I, I was, you know, that's, it's a sad moment, but I think that also is necessary and like unbreaking her from following along with everything she hears in school now she's hearing about her relatives that are rebellious so it's like oh well if these people who are related to me are rebelling against this guy then he's probably a bad guy so that's like the first her first step to growing past this propaganda she's been taught isn't that so scary mm-hmm. like- Like, I think, and that's why I think reading this right now is so poignant. And it's like what you said earlier in the intro, like, I, I, and I agree, I don't know, I know barely anything about Iran or Iraq, because Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to blame my education. But also, like, I didn't know anything other than like, we hate them, we're at war with them, you know, which I think is how it becomes poignant is because Mm -hmm. we do kind of live in a country that you know, weaponizes information, weaponizes knowledge. And it's this country that's just like demonized, has been demonized constantly in this country for the past two decades. Before 1980, Tehran was a fairly like... They were doing great. They were doing great. They were like so freaking progressive. Mm Mm-hmm. Like even with, you know, the Shah in place, who was a piece of shit, obviously, it was still a relatively progressive city. And it's the same with so I think it's this is a good starting place to like explore literature from other countries because there's so like reading texts from Syria, like Syria is a progressive uh, country up until a few years ago. And it's just like all of these places that we assume are these ultra religious, you know, People don't have freedoms. People don't have rights. Like, da, 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 da. It's like, well, that's, it's recent. Those are recent things. I don't know what my point was there. My point that's was a, read, <laughs> read non-American authors. That's my point. Uh, ex- expand the worldview. Like, yeah. see that there's more outside of, like, there's more outside of this than just being afraid as an American. Like, mm-hmm. Put a like, put a face, put a voice to the fear that you have, and see if it changes your mind. I think it's always there is always more you can learn. There's always more you can learn about different people, different places, different experiences. So it's you know broaden your worldview, learn about Absolutely. you know different countries that you didn't even know existed. 
well, or stories you didn't know existed. Also that like, just because a terrorist organization does something doesn't mean that they speak for a country. Exactly. I think this book shows that so well. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, most of the people protesting the Shah at the beginning are not members of the Islamic Republic. And also, um, most of the Muslims in that country are not supportive of the Islamic government that takes hold. There's one character, I can't remember specifically who she was, but she talks about how she's been a Muslim her whole life and she's never felt the need to wear the veil because it wasn't necessary to her exercising her religion. And Mm -hmm. she felt it was sort of in... She basically was like, I shouldn't be told how to do my religion. I can't believe they're making us do this. So it's a lot of the story is about how you can use the tenets of religion to exercise control and convince people that what you're doing is not good enough. You have to do this, 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 and this, or we're doing this in the name of God so we can't be wrong. Any government doing that, despite you know, which religion they're doing it in the name of is is dangerous. And it sets a super negative precedent because you it is difficult to rebel against that, especially if you're Muslim, because then you're essentially rebelling against your own religion. Exactly. It sounds almost familiar. It does. It sounds creepily familiar. And I absolutely like do not want to compare our present day to pre-1980s Tehran, but it's difficult to read this story and not see the similarities. Absolutely. And it's difficult to read it and not be afraid because that first part is so like, everyone is so happy. Everyone's happy. Everyone's dancing. Everyone's having parties. And then they just get whapped in the face with a situation way worse than what they were in. So it's like, yes, of course, like I think we are on the cusp of real change. I think within the next six to eight years, this country will be vastly different. I, But reading this made me realize I don't know if it's going to be a change for the good or if it's going to make me miss 2020, which right now I find very difficult oh, to do. Yeah, that's terrifying to think about. <laughs> because it is one of the, one of the things I was struck by going back to Anoush because he really was one of, even though he's not, he's only in it for about half the book, he's one of the most interesting characters in the book. And there's a, a conversation he's having with Margie's dad where they're talking about the fact that most of the common people are supporting the Islamic Republic. And he's like, well, these people just aren't smart enough to understand Marx and Engels and they don't understand, you know, how good socialism is. Yeah, like they just don't understand it. And and when I was reading it, I was like, so tell them. So tell them. Like if you don't think that they are going to understand reading the Communist Manifesto, then you read it and you tell them. You can't blame people for not knowing something you don't think that they can know. I don't think I said that right. But the point is, is like the reason these people are supportive of, you know, in an Islamic government is because... The religious leaders are never, religious leaders of any religion are never afraid to meet people where they are and talk to them in their language and realize what their wants and needs are and find a way to address that that will benefit them. When you break it down, the concepts of socialism are not difficult to understand. It is not difficult to talk to somebody and be like, okay, you know how we all work doing this job? Imagine if when we sold something, instead of all that extra money going to the boss, we all get it. And then we use it to up our salaries, make more products, get a better working environment. It's not difficult to explain to people why this way of life could be better. But there's there's a weird, and I don't want to say that specifically her uncle suffered from this, but it is something that you see in leftist circles. There's this weird intellectualism. Oh, I've read all of these books and I I just don't see how the average person could understand it without also reading all of these books. And it's to the detriment of any progressive movement because you have to meet 
people where they are. If you want people to believe in something, you have to tell them why they should believe in something. You can't just wait for everybody to read the Communist Manifesto. You have to tell them what is in there that is going to benefit them. And it's interesting to think of how the whole thing could have been different if there would have been some charismatic leaders who were working to address the people the same way these religious leaders were. Where do you think that disconnect comes from? Honestly, I feel like it comes from, and it's the same thing, I think, for people who are deep into like QAnon or other like big conspiracies. There's this strange need to feel like you know more than everybody else. Like, I'm better than the rabble because I know this, this, and this. And it's almost like a superiority complex. Like, oh, I understand this. It's too complex for these other people to understand. And my, my thought always is, if you truly understand something, you should be able to explain it in a way that the average person can understand. But there's a weird, it's intellectualism. It's like, oh, I'm so much smarter than everybody else. But when you it's do that, pedantry. you're... Pedantry. What? It's yeah. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're really cutting off your nose to spite your face because by continuing to pursue the superiority complex, you might f- consistently feel better about yourself, but when the religious revolution comes, you're going to end up in jail. Or you do what a certain political party does, which is you don't even explain anything. You just base it on fear politics. And when you do have candidates who come out, oh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> the first part, I thought you were talking about Democrats. <laughs> because i was like yeah they they don't explain anything they're every every single platform like if you explain medicare for all if you explain universal health care to somebody without using the demonized words of universal health care if you talk to a farmer in nebraska and you're like or i don't that's too much of a cliche if you talk to a mechanic in des moines and you're like, wouldn't it be great if if you're having chest pain, you can feel comfortable going to the doctor, going to the emergency room and knowing that you're going to, you know, you can get checked up when you get sick and you're not going to owe 10 grand to the hospital. Wouldn't it be good to have that? That's all you have to do. Just explain to people, wouldn't it be nice? Because if you go to the emergency room because you're having chest pains, this is an average so it's fairly accurate. You go to the hospital, you get all of the testing to see if you have a heart attack. You get all the medicines and the IV and everything. It adds up to around 50 grand. Jesus and Christ. right? And the insurance company will pay I think 80% of that. Which sounds good until you realize you were on the hook for 10 grand. What sort of backwards bullshit is it that you don't want to die so you go to the emergency room and you're on the hook for 10 grand that's why americans are so unhealthy because you can't just go to the hospital you can't just go to the doctor all of this stuff is out of reach because of the price factor well and we lack education around healthcare in america and i know like it's it's easy to say like go research it go google it blah blah, blah. but still it's like where are And I think, again, this comes at like a base level of education. Like, why are we not teaching this in high school? Like when you go out into the world in America, you're going to need to, you're going to be on your parents' health insurance until you're 26. So Mm -hmm. what you need to know, we're going to go and teach you this, keep it in your heart, keep it in your little baby brains, your little baby 18 year old brains. This is going to help you understand insurance premiums. And this is going to help you understand what you need to get. Do you go to the doctor often? Okay, well then you don't need to get this, but you can get this instead. There's no knowledge around it. It really does feel like I'm shopping for a dollar sign. Yeah. I feel like I've talked a lot about some of the themes I saw. Was there anything in specific you wanted to talk about in regards to like the story itself or any part of it? I, you know, here's the funny thing about my note taking your name is that it all made sense earlier today and now I'm just staring at a steno pad of just like um, hieroglyphics. <laughs> that, that's my handwriting. <laughs> oh, you handwrote your notes? Oh, yeah. 
Oh my God. I love that. I'm old school. I love that. I, it's funny. I love like handwriting things, but whenever I do my notes, I always type them up and it's mostly so that I can like move stuff around and I like being able to, I like how I can structure things in Google Docs. I'm going to start using Google Docs then because that just makes more sense. I had, you know, I had, um, I think your themes kind of covered my themes. I, I, you know, it's, it's when they're like, they knew someone who got 75 lashes for throwing a party. Yes. And the fact that like in the undercurrent, her parents are actively doing these things that people are being punished for. And that's gotta be a fear in the back of her head that like, Oh shit. Oh, he got that. Okay. Well that could easily happen to my parents. And it nearly did when they get stopped by the police officer and accused of drinking and her and her grandmother have to like run up the stairs and dump all the alcohol well, into the toilet. Well, then able to pay the cop off too, which is wild. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Cops don't, cops don't change. No. Something that's universal is they, mm-hmm. they're all corrupt. They're not, well, they're not all, not all cops are corrupt. I loved, um, in particular, one of the stories that really struck me um, that kind of like embodies how terrible, how fragile, how corrupt the system is. It's, it's the mm-hmm. uncle. And I help me with the pronunciation because I meant to look it up. Taher. I think it's Taher. Taher. So the uncle Taher passport story really, um, <gasps> really moves me. That was. Oh, really, my God. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's. It's the fact, it's so many elements. It's mm-hmm. he, this um, window washer suddenly deciding the fate of a former window washi. Only because he was um, religious. Yeah. Like, I don't, I'm not succumb, but he basically, he takes advantage of this new system yes. and is able to rise up in it. And it's just these steps where like, oh, you think it's going to be good. Like, oh, he's in the hospital. Oh, you just have to talk to this person and they will give you the, we can't work on him, but we, out, if we can get him outside of the country, we can. You just have to talk to this one guy. And then the one guy is like, well, uh, no, you can't leave. Why? Because you can't leave. Well, and we'll see. We'll leave it up to, we'll, we'll pray. We'll leave it up to Muhammad. Yeah. Yeah. Like how Jesus, like, well, uh. No, not no pun intended, but no but irony. T- intended. <laughs> <laughs> Something. <laughs> well, and then but they it, go on vacation after that too. It's, mm-hmm. I, I don't understand why they wouldn't just leave the country then. I, it was very strange to me, even in the first part where people they know are starting to leave. People they know are recognizing the situation, realizing that it's going to get really shitty and leaving. And her parents are like, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's going to be fine. around it. At one point, her dad's like, "I'm not going to drive a taxi around when I'm so prominent here." He doesn't mm-hmm. say prominent, but in so many words. But like, yeah. And I and I don't deny him that. That's what's wild to me too. Is like, I completely resonate with that. I completely resonate with like, why should I leave here when I have become prominent and a and I have become something they are upper class his dad was once the ruler of the country Mm -hmm. his dad his grandfather yeah was once the ruler of the country like they are upper class so i i mean i understand it but it's one of those things where you know things are gonna get bad and you know even when when they do go on vacation it's like why not just stay there what exactly is waiting for you back in this country but fear and restriction and it's ultimately that i think that leads them to send her away like this realizing that they might they've been through this they've been through this they've protested they've lived through an authoritarian government before but i think part of it is wanting better for their daughter and realizing that with the way she is and with the way they have raised her and the way she is developing, 
she is going to continue to get in trouble with the law. And one day, it's going to be too many. One day, she's going to wear a denim jacket in front of the wrong person, and she's not going to be able to talk her way out of it. Yeah, that's a wild scene, too. Mm -hmm. When she runs in with the committee. Yes. Uh, Like, could have gone so many different ways, which she, of course, described. She's like, yep, could have been in jail. They could have whipped me. They could have taken everything. Mm -hmm. I could have disappeared for days. Which I think that's what's, and again, very timely, when people are disappearing for undisclosed amounts of time, I'm like, okay, something's mm-hmm. not right here. Like, this this isn't the right system. Like, Oh, yeah. Absolutely not. Any form of secret police, any form of unmarked vans, and people in paramilitary gear who won't tell you what government, government organization they're from, any part of that is scary. Any part of that is terrifying. And isn't there, isn't there an occasion where like her dad disappears for a little bit? Okay. So what happens with that is he was out photographing. He was doing photography because they're like, we can't, because they were scared that he got snatched up. And then he's Mm -hmm. like, I'm sorry. I was out photographing what was happening. And that was the hopeful moment where like the woman Mm -hmm. who they were carrying the lady's um, husband's body out. And she's like, he died of cancer. And then She's like, put his body down. And then she ended up joining the revolution chanting with them, mm-hmm. which was a very special moment for him. That was, that was a really great moment. There's so much hope in the beginning of the book. And then by the end, this poor girl is like getting berated in the street for wearing a denim jacket with a Michael Jackson pin on it. It's um, Malcolm X. Which was smart. Like, how smart is that to think of that in the moment? To be like, oh, no, it's Malcolm X. He's black and Muslim. It's okay. He's also Muslim. Well... And, like, I think it so speaks to I, – I think I think you, you make a great point of, like, there's so much hope in the beginning. And we see through the course of this graphic um, novel slash memoir, we see hope take form in a young girl's identity mm-hmm. and the unwillingness to bend that identity because of a repressive regime. Yes, it is so – It's really interesting and, of course, funny just to see the way her and her classmates just immediately start acting out when they have these new strict religious guidelines put on them. How they don't take the headscarf seriously. Hmm? They band together. Yes. Like, it's just an entire group of kids who have just, like, decided, fuck this. Absolutely not. Like, this is stupid that we're having to do this and just not taking it seriously at all. And... I mean, part of it is that they were before their school was completely secular and to have it changed immediately to a like you're going from very relaxed where whatever you want and like boys and girls are together to completely segregated and you have to wear the veil and you have to do this, this and this. And of course, like a, a nine, 10 year old child who doesn't understand why they have to do this is going to speak out and act out against it. And it's, I don't know if charming is the right word, but it was, it was very interesting to see just like these out of control kids just refusing to wear their veils correctly or even do the smallest thing. Well, it felt human. It felt like, Oh, these are kids being as kids are supposed to be. Yes. And just like, it was the little pieces of rebellion she has throughout the story are like you said like it's very humanizing like just the fact that she's able she's still living in this very oppressive regime but she still cuts class you know she still listens to very western music she still hangs out at restaurants and record stores she has these small pieces of being a teenager so she can still like grow and develop even though like she could be killed any minute for any of these, but she still like is able to grasp and hold on to them in, you know, despite everything else going on. Like in a culture that calls for you to erase every part of your identity, she still perseveres and actually mm-hmm. uses her identity as a weapon against this oppressive culture. Yes. Yes. That, and, and it's nice to see that she's not alone. Because 
She doesn't skip because she's like, oh, I just want to skip. She skips because two of her older friends tell her to and are like, we're going. You should come with us. So it's nice. I don't know. It was very, it was very, very cool to see that like teenagers or kids are going to be kids. Teenagers are going to be teenagers. You can't just like oppress their humanity out of them. I loved her mom freaking out when she left. Oh when my she, like, God. When yes. she dropped out of school or not dropped out of school. Sorry. That's so dramatic. When she um, <laughs> skipped class. Yes. That was a good, that was a, uh, she's like, I'll cover for you this time. But if you do it again. <laughs> because, you know, I think, I think that's the struggle of her parents because her parents are both these very progressive, secular, free thinkers. And they raise their daughter to be the same way. But it's also dangerous that they raised her this way because, like her mom says, like, I'll cover for you this time, but I can't do it again. Like, it's just realizing, oh, shit, what have I done? Like, what have we done? We have raised somebody with our ideals, but our ideals get people put in prison. Our ideals get people whipped. Our ideals get people executed. I quoted one of the dad's lines, which it's such a read. It's actually after um, it's after the like they as a class kind of like rebel against the teacher and they have a meeting with the parents and then they all storm out. And he says, if hair is, so, is as stimulating as you say, <laughs> then you need to shave your mustache. I thought that, I was like, oh, it's so mean, but it's so hilarious. I'm like it's savage so read, like cut, like come through, like get her, like dang. <laughs> You were not playing Margie's dad. But I understand is like, if hair is so alluring, how can men have beards? Like, is it just like because women aren't subject to the same romantic, sexual, whatever that men are? I want to say that the beard emulates Muhammad. And I would also argue that the beard hides the face, right? Oh, yeah. I guess that's true. I think it's truly like, I mean, from what I'm, from what I'm garnering, I'm mm-hmm. no expert again, not claiming to be an expert, but I think it's truly like hiding all forms of identity in the self. Okay. You know what we haven't talked about much is Ooh, tell me. we talked about it a little bit, but just the Iran Iraq war, just that situation where four families like Margie, Margie or Marjane's Margie's and you know, their friends, you're you have like two fronts of oppression, or maybe not oppression, but two fronts of violence. You have the state who is ready to inflict violence on you at any time if you step out of line. And then you have this entirely different country that's bombing your city. So like not only do you have to live in constant fear that you're gonna get in trouble for wearing a bracelet or wearing your veil the wrong way or having the wrong facial hair. But you also have to listen constantly for sirens and know exactly where to go to, you know, escape and get to a safe place for when these fighter jets come over your head. And I have to imagine that that is, thankfully, is an experience I have never had to live through. I can't even imagine it. Like the scene where she realizes that the bomb hit her street. And at the end of her street, where the only options are her house or their neighbor's house, that scene is it it's heart wrenching because for a moment it's like, oh my God, oh my God. And then even when you realize that her family is okay, then it's like, oh, because it's not it's not relief. It's no. just a different level of grief because these people you know, don't exist anymore because of something you are not you as a person are not involved in have no decision on can't do anything about well and it's like it's 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 not it's in no way normalized but it's Mm -hmm. so it's so becomes a part of everyday life you become desensitized to the bombing until it gets close enough to you yeah because i think a few pages before that they even tease somebody for freaking out over the sirens yeah and then it happens on her street and it's like oh shit i do have to fucking take this seriously the sadness of her parents when 
Um, I think they hear this. They hear sirens, and she's like, "We should go to the basement." And her mom's like, "It won't do any good." Uh, but the way these yeah. bombs hit, we're gonna be dead anyway. So, it it's just terrifying to just be nothing but fodder for your government when she's talking about how many Iranians have died because they just keep sending people to the front lines because they don't have the weaponry that Iraq has, but they have more people. So that's the only thing of value they think they can send is just like, oh, well, we'll keep sending people to the front lines until we run out. So just thousands and thousands of dead Iranians because these people haven't been in government very long. They don't know how to fight against another country and they just are putting their people at risk for no reason when they could have just conceded but they refused to they could have come to an agreement but they refused to sorry i got very emotional right there very no i love it no i'm with you i'm literally i'm sitting here i'm like (laughs) i'm like pride pride will be the death of us all yeah exactly like the moment where iraq wants to reach an agreement and the iranian government says no it's just like you don't care about your people yeah, like this is no longer this is no longer about like protecting your people. Mm-hmm. You just want to be the king of the mountain for some stupid reason. Because exactly. if you cared about your people, you would want peace for your people. You would want people to be able to live their lives without constant fear, without two avenues of constant fear. That's religious ethics. That's nationalism in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Right, the identification with one's own interests, and they're at the detriment to others yeah and in this case it's to the detriment of their own people exactly the the people they're supposed to serve sorry it's very overwhelming those were basically the talking points you're like so that's all i wanted to cover today (laughs) (laughs) you're like so thank you so much for listening and that's the note we're gonna end on um those are the things that traumatized me the most (laughs) and now you're traumatized so you're welcome I mean, it's not a, it's, you read the book and it's, it's not funny, but it has this lightness about it. But Mm -hmm. then the things that it discusses are so dark. And I think that's what we realize as we talk about this. There's like, there's no, there's no brevity. There's no real like, and to think that like, oh, she's, she has this moment of everyday life. Like that's the lightness. Like, what does that say about life during this time? Yeah, her form of rebellion against her government is buying a cassette tape. That's ridiculous. And it's one of those things where it it reminds me of whenever you see like the heartwarming stories like this little boy's sister has cancer. So he set up a lemonade stand and raised $5,000 towards her treatment. Like that's not heartwarming. That's not heartwarming. That's terrifying. That's dystopic. And I think that story is very similar because at the point that it is in the story as a whole, you're like, oh, how cool that she gets to have this moment to be a teenager. But then it's like, oh, my God, how terrible is it that that, you know, that is such an extreme, extreme form of rebellion for her to just have a normal moment as a teenager. After the whole situation with the committee, it's like, I was lucky they didn't find my cassette tapes. That was so scary. That was a scary moment. Yeah, man. Theocracies are shitty, no matter what the religion. Truly. I would like to be quoted as saying that. Like that on a t-shirt. I would like that on a bumper sticker. Religions are personal business. They really are. There should never be a point where the rule and law of the land is dictated by religion. Well, and religion at its heart is personal guidance, right? It's not, it's, it's meant to be, you follow what brings you peace. You follow what you believe and it should never be forced down another person's throat or it should never dictate how laws are made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the point where if you're forcing people to do something in the name of your religion, then you're not doing it correctly. Like, I guess it's the same thing, like what I was talking about earlier, where it's like persuading people rather than making fun of them for not knowing. I think this is a branch off of that, where if your religion is so good, if your ideologies are so good, if everything you believe is so right and so correct and is truly the right, perfect way, then you shouldn't need to force people to do it. Then you should be able to persuade people of why you think it's the right way. 
Well, and the stuff that comes out of this too, like where they're trading, like, so the, you, you remember the part where the women, in order for them to be executed, they have to marry an officer and they're executed and they send like the $5 dowry. That, um, I cringed so much at that point. What does that say about your beliefs in the system that you're operating in? Like Mm -hmm. that, because again, it's, it's selective blindness and- Mm -hmm. It's like to execute someone is to say that they are beyond reform. So again, to speak to what you were saying, like if they're not following what your beliefs are, then why not just reform them rather than execute them? Ooh, now see, now that's, that is a whole subject that I think can apply to so many things. I feel like they also use that as, it's one of the, like they use that as a weapon to make sure women specifically stay in line like how her mother freaks out about it because it's where like if you're if you are a woman and you rebel against us this is what's going to happen it's almost like a desecration because it's almost in the way that a black mass is a reversal a perverse reversal a perversal <gasps> yes <laughs> a, per- a perversal of a regular catholic mass i think this is the same way normally when you get married you find somebody you like them you get married to them you have a happy relationship and this is just like we've arbitrarily decided that you can't die a virgin so we're forcing this on you like we're forcing this relationship we're forcing every bit of this on you so it's like it's robbing them of something additional besides their life weren't there like weird i was i didn't maybe i didn't fully understand but there were like weird nuptial things for the men who died unmarried oh the shiite nuptial chambers Yeah, I didn't totally get what those were for. Was it just like, so a random woman could come up and be married to them or? No, it's this weird thing where it's like it mimics. um, I looked it up because I was curious and there's some really great articles. Um, All you have to literally all you Google are Shiite nuptial chamber. Um, Specifically, if you do it on Google Scholar, you'll find some good stuff. It's basically the what's mysterious about the nuptial chamber is that it's actually void of anything feminine. It's just kind of like the um, emulation of a chamber okay. of, of like a womb. So it's it's equating with like it's like the spiritual coming of age for someone who died before they were able to lose their virginity. Oh, okay. I was like, huh. I don't, I didn't know what to picture. I think that's my thing. It's like mm-hmm. the article I read had no pictures. So I was just kind of like free balling what I <laughs> thought they looked like. <laughs> so I'm like, why do I imagine like a mausoleum and it's not a mausoleum, but mm-hmm. it's like a sex mausoleum. It's like a sex mausoleum that has no femininity. Yeah. So it's not like in a cool gothic way. It's in a, a weird patriarchal way. It's like we look at, okay, the joke is we find out it's like BJ Roosters. <laughs> like you Google like local Shiite nuptial chambers and like BJ Rooster shows up. <laughs> this is how we lose all of our Muslim audience. Exactly. Like, sorry. I'm, I, I, I empathize with you. I'm sorry. Come back. You can take the girl out of Jersey, but you can't keep the girl from giving blowjobs on the Jersey Turnpike. (laughs) That is is perfect. Um, I did think of a way we can end this episode on a positive note. (gasps) Tell me. I'm curious. Because we haven't really talked about the artwork in the graphic novel. Oh my gosh. Yes. So important. Because it's completely black and white which I think is beautiful. And it reminded me a lot of German expressionism, like Ooh. the like the mm-hmm. blocky cuts. It's, I don't want to say simplistic, but it is very like, it's not very extravagant. It's very focused on very basic shapes. Like it's very easy to read. Um, there's not a lot going on in every single scene because you only have two colors to work with. So there's only so much you can portray. But I realized I realize what it is because I was reading this thing with Usher. I realize what it is is it's that sort of like block cut or like wooden block cut art is what it looks like. 
Ooh, yeah. And like those scenes with like the crowds and everything just remind me of MC Escher artwork, just like the patterns of people and how they fit perfectly interconnected with each other. Not only is it a terrific way to show large crowds of people, but it shows the way they were moving and functioning all together for like a common goal. Yes. The artwork is amazing. I don't know who the artist is. Is it? Is it Marjane? Did she also do the artwork for it? I think she did the artwork. I think they would have credited. um, Let me look. I'm pretty sure she did both. Okay. Yeah, because I don't. There's no credit for like art artwork done by, so she did both. I I agree with you. She's like she's a powerhouse, and like I think it's such a smart move to keep it so simple because Mm -hmm. these these deeper moments, like anytime anyone dies, anytime anyone they like capture the violence. There's no. There's, it's almost like there's nowhere for it to hide. Yes. Like it's so, it, it just, it is what it is. The man with his head in the bathtub, the guy who they said he killed himself, but it was so very obvious that like he was drowned by the police. Mm-hmm. And he, it's the picture of his head just like he has his head in the bathtub. Yeah. And it's like, it's so, it's stark, it's real, it's, um, it it's it is what it is, and I think she uses it so well to her advantage. Like especially when I was talking about the the crowds like rising up in protest, she also uses that unity to show the conformity they were forced to do. Like the very, I think it's like the very first image of the book. It's like her and two classmates, and she's like, "That's me on the right." Although you probably can't tell. Shortly after the war starts. And it's the image of all of the girls like beating their breasts because that's what they were told to do. And they all look exactly the same or like contrasting with, sorry, I'm like looking at pages of the book now. So it all is just coming back to me. But of all this, all these beautiful scenes, contrast that with, you know, the contrast, the image of all the girls looking the same, doing the exact same thing with the image she has for the day the Shah stepped down. And where she says the country had the biggest celebration of its entire history. And you see all these different people, all different faces look, they all look unique and different, even though they're all ecstatic, they're all wearing different patterns, different stripes, different everything. And it's that dichotomy, that difference of the way people were with the way they were forced to be. And then there's just some that are like, I'm just looking at the art and it's it's all just so striking. Like when you said the image where the guy's in the bathtub and then the image of people leaving after the bombing starts and it's just this flow. The image around the cars is not just like water, but it also looks like fire to like represent the buildings which were struck by the bombing. It's so good. It's, it's so good. And so just like so smart too to like it's it's drawn and this is again careful wording because it's not what I mean it to mean. It's not childish in nature the drawing, but it's drawn as though it's from the capacity of understanding of a child. Mhm. Does that make sense? Yeah, like the way she shows the committee women are just one long shape with a face in it their bodies don't have any any shape like you they don't have any arms they don't have any legs they're just a long i guess bell shape with a face in it which i'm sure is how a child would see somebody like that exactly and like the tears um and then this this contrast of like i I, i'm seeing a panel right now where it was her dad she's describing how he takes photos and then how the people in the photo suddenly have like this realistic quality to them a little oh, bit. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's the imagination of a child of what's happening around her. And then the actual realism of like, oh, her father's actually photographing what's happening. So here's like this more mm-hmm. harsher edge, like the real. And it, it just feels as though it's drawn from like the rounding edge of coming of age of a child 
dealing with like these really like consequential human travesties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just having to grow up in that environment and seeing all these things change around you. And I love it. And I'm terrified by it. Mm -hmm. Same. And I think that's what makes it beautiful. (laughs) It's like, I I love it. I think it's a story. I think her story needs to be told and what Mm -hmm. a form to tell it in. Like I said before, I think that this particular medium was the absolute perfect way to tell her story because I think if this had just been a written novel, you're not going to get all of the emotion and nuance and you're not going to be able to see it in the same way as if it was just words on a page. Seeing the bodies going up everywhere with the keys or the keys to heaven around their neck like oh. that to me is so much more poignant than just reading that sentence agreed you're so right oh this was such a good book to start on i can't wait for part two. Oh my god yes yes because i have never read part two like i've only i have part two but i've never taken the time to read it so i'm very excited to get into this me too i'm pretty pumped it's Because it's about her returning to Iran, isn't it? I can't remember. I know a majority of it is her growing up outside. Well, that's going to be interesting. I'm very excited. Same. I can't like keep as much mystery as possible until we both read it. (laughs) Uh, Well, did you have fun? Did you enjoy this? I did. I had a blast. I hope you enjoyed it. I love talking to you. So yes, you too. the joke is you're he- like, you're like, yeah, I don't think we should have a second episode. I think uh, <laughs> this was a, this was fun. It was really good hearing your voice. Um, yeah. I'll just text you in like a few in a, in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I have enjoyed every part of this and I have enjoyed discussing this with you so much. I can't believe we did it. I am so happy we did. And I hope everyone will tune in to the next episode. Yes. um, I guess we should sign off, right? That's what people do in these podcasts. Mm -hmm. Okay. um, You go first, Renee. Oh, God. Okay. Um, So keep reading. Uh, Read everything you can get your hands on. Read with an informed mind and with... Uh, a critical thought. Uh, don't take anything at face value and do your own research. That's so much. I'm going to have to cut that down in the future. I love it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I'm Jace Wingate and that is Renee Pogue. Yes. And we're Read This Way. And we're Read This Way.